Hey there, travelers. I'm Isabella, and this is True Crime International. Today's case brings us to the Congo, but before we get started, I want to offer a huge trigger warning. This will be the only trigger warning I give today, so you need to decide now if you're going to listen, but this episode is going to deal a lot with colonialism, slavery, and kind of sort of genocide. So if those are themes that you are sensitive to, please, I beg you, skip this episode. I'll see you next week. I am not going to be delicate when telling the story because it's important to know in its entirety, especially since it's just not talked about nearly enough and we need to properly understand it. So that's your trigger warning. If you need to go, that's okay. And if you are going to stay, buckle in because it's going to be a bumpy ride. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of how a Belgian king slaughtered 10 million people in the Congo in a sort of genocide that I had never heard about until like a month or two ago. So let's start in the country of Belgium, which for colonial power is actually a pretty young country. When we think of the biggest European colonialists, we naturally think of England, Spain, France, and to some extent, the Netherlands and Portugal. And they were all independent nations centuries before they became colonial powers. Belgium, however, wasn't declared an independent nation until 1831 when it broke away from the Netherlands with Leopold I named as the first king of the country, which was actually set up as a constitutional monarchy from the very beginning, meaning the real power lied with the organized government, not with the monarch, who is more like a figurehead. The UK is a constitutional monarchy for reference. Like the the Queen does not actually have a lot of direct power. The power lies in the government. And Belgium was set up like that from the very beginning. Leopold I ruled until his death in 1865, and then his son, Leopold II, ascended the throne. At age 30, this was not Leopold II's first time being active in politics, as he had actually been a member of the Senate for like 10 years beforehand. His favorite political issues to work on during his time in the Senate were largely based around trade and the development of the nation, particularly with how they could compete with other nations, and he pushed for Belgium to become a colonial power with very little support from his colleagues. His father also wanted Belgium to be a colonial power, trying 50 different times throughout his reign to become one. That's 50, 5-0, with zero success. When Leopold II took the throne, he still wanted to make Belgium a colonial power and to do what his father never could. But he actually didn't have the authority to do so under the constitutional monarchy. So the first 20 years or so of his reign were marked by great political changes, but none that really involved Belgium expanding its power and influence abroad. During this time, Belgium introduced 
free public primary school for all children. They regulated child labor, allowed workers to form unions and, and receive workers' compensation. And they were granted, and everybody, everybody was granted Sundays off. And all of those things were awesome, but they weren't enough for Leo, who was far more power hungry than his father ever was. I mean, for 18-something-something, those labor laws were fairly progressive. But Leopold didn't give a shit. He just did not care. He just wanted more power. Constitutional monarchies really limit the powers of the monarch. They do have some power, but they generally cannot make executive decisions, especially when it comes to international relations, whether that be starting a war, making huge trade deals, or establishing a colony. Leopold was incredibly frustrated that he didn't have the amount of power that he wanted, which was why he pushed so heavily for a colony. But his government felt that it was an antiquated practice at that point, which it absolutely was. Leopold's desire for a colony had nothing to do with improving Belgium. It had everything to do with the fact that he wanted to be an absolute ruler and make a lot of money. Like he, he didn't care about anything else. The Belgian government, though, they were absolutely right to not want to be a colony because the colonial powers, or at least the powers of the colonies at that point, like it was on the decline. They were past the peak. So it was antiquated. There was no real reason to do it. They were like, we don't need a colony in order to compete with these other nations. But Leopold was like, I don't, I don't, I don't care about that. Also, just a small explainer for what I just said before anybody gets upset. Um, improving a country should never be done through colonialism. Whether your goal is to improve your own country or the one that you're colonizing, and it's never that, let's not kid ourselves. No no colonizing country was ever like, oh, we're going to go make that country so much better because we're so nice. No, it was always for themselves. But it doesn't matter. Colonialism is bad no matter which way you slice it. I only said it that way because that's how the European colonial powers justified their behaviors for centuries. They caused immeasurable harm for the sake of lining their own pockets and asserting their dominance. But they kept everyone behind them by making it all about how everyone's life would improve by the conquests, even those uncivilized indigenous peoples in the countries they were colonizing. But it never had anything to do with actually improving their lives, only their own. But I digress. Leopold spent a long time trying to figure out how he could get that colony he wanted so bad. He looked all over the world for one, from the Far East to the Caribbean, but nothing ever worked out. But things changed forever when a Welsh explorer named Henry Morton Stanley decided to attempt to be the first white man to cross the continent of Africa from east to west, which meant cutting through the Congo Basin in a direction that no European had ever gone before. And this intrigued Leopold, who saw Stanley's success in this endeavor to be the key to access the region. At that point in time, the Congo hadn't been explored much by Europeans. Some Portuguese explorer had tried to lay claim to it in 1482, but there wasn't a whole lot of success there. It did end up becoming a Portuguese vassal state, but I'll talk about that more in a, in a little bit. The Congo Basin remained relatively untouched by the Europeans for a long time. 
Not only was the terrain difficult to navigate with just the densest rainforests, harsh swamps, and rampant malaria, but the locals used those things to their advantage to put up some excellent resistance whenever a rogue European came poking their nose where it didn't belong. And because of that, for a long time, the colonizers in Europe were somewhat okay with leaving Central Africa alone if no one was willing to go there. So when Stanley did in fact successfully cross through the Congo, Leopold knew that he had to jump on the opportunity to claim ownership of the land before someone else did. Leopold's plan was twofold. One, hire Stanley to begin building infrastructure in the Congo. And while he does that, King Leopold would do part two, which was go to the European leaders and convince them that his interests in the Congo were purely humanitarian and philanthropic. And he wasn't even creative in how he went about tricking them. He went with the classics of wanting to bring civilization and Jesus to the indigenous peoples, and the rich bastards of Europe bought it. They were like, yeah, of course, that's exactly what we have to do, because that's the right thing always. So while King Leopold was schmoozing the wealthiest of Europe and making them feel like heroes, Stanley was at work building roads, bridges, steamers, and even a railway in the Congo, claiming it for Belgium with the king's money and awaiting the news that the Congo belonged to the Belgians. Everything came to a head in 1884, when a 14-nation conference was called in Berlin to officially and finally decide what should be done with the Congo. And it should be noted that not one person born on the entire continent of Africa, let alone the Congo, was in attendance at that conference. It was a bunch of white people bunch of Europeans. By this point, Leopold had already convinced the leaders of pretty much all the nations represented at the conference why it should be him. In the end, the 14 nations decided that the Congo shouldn't be directly controlled by Belgium or indeed any nation, so they instead opted to give it to Leopold as his personal property. Yes, the Congo was owned by a singular white guy who had never even been there. He was the owner of the entire fucking country. The powers at this conference then spent the rest of their time giving birth to what they now called the Congo Free State. And free is definitely a misnomer, but we'll talk about it later. They drew up the borders for the country, and in the end... The area of land Leopold was given complete control over was 905,000 square miles, or 2.3 million square kilometers, and it was home to some 20 to 30 million people. In exchange for all of that land and power, Leopold simply had to let the other countries in whenever they wanted, without tariffs. That was it. And you know, Leopold was unfortunately a smart man, and he knew that anybody could question why he had so much direct power over so many people. And if one person questioned it, 
others would follow. So he had to make sure that he could prove that the people in the Congo, quote unquote, consented to being ruled by him. So he had Stanley trick several chiefs into signing an agreement that pretty much said that the indigenous wanted total control to go to Leopold. And in doing so, no one could argue with Leopold's power. He had all of his ducks in a row to truly do what he wanted with impunity and no regard for the lives of the people that he ruled. King Leopold II once wrote, quote, A people which is content with its homeland and which dreads even the shadow of a conflict lacks the characteristics of a superior race, unquote. But before we move on to what Leopold did to the indigenous population, let's take a second to actually talk about the Congo. So the Congo was first settled by the Bantu people in the first millennium, and their populations grew over the centuries, first living as separate hunter-gatherer societies, but then growing and merging together and creating larger societies and trade works until the year 1390, when the Kingdom of Congo was born. And for nearly 500 years, the Kingdom of Congo had a ton of influence in Central Africa that extended all the way to the Atlantic. It was a vassal state of Portugal, which I briefly mentioned earlier, but for the most part, they were pretty much able to do what they wanted. The deal with the Portuguese was basically one where the Portuguese got first dibs on any of the trade with the kingdom, but they didn't have like direct rule over the Congo. The Congo is an extremely resource-rich part of the world, and to this day, not all of it is tapped into, which is probably a good thing. But in the days of the Kingdom of Congo, they traded mainly iron, copper, ivory, and unfortunately, slaves. The kingdom had its own complex system of rule. It collected taxes, it issued fines, and it essentially had a military that kept invaders away. Like I said earlier, their knowledge of the unique landscape and climate was what was able to keep Europeans pretty much out of their hair for a long time. The Congo Basin sits along the equator, and it sees some of the highest rainfalls anywhere in the world. That means it is hot and it is humid. For me, the worst type of climate. I cannot handle heat and humidity. Much of the region is covered in dense tropical forests that can be difficult to navigate, and tons of native plant and animal species, some very deadly to humans, gladly call it home. And that's why it took so long for the Europeans to actually get a proper grip on the region, because they could not stand having such a large region of the African continent not be under their direct rule, especially one rich in so many resources. But for a long time, the best that they could do was have it as a Portuguese vassal state. That is, until Leopold II, King of the Belgians, stepped in. One thing the Congolese never got from the Portuguese throughout their centuries of trade was proper weapons. And honestly, that had to have been on purpose, either to keep the Congolese from fighting them or to prevent the Congolese from being able to properly defend themselves should other Europeans come knocking 
but most likely a combination of the two. So when the Belgians came knocking in 1885 with all of the finest modern weapons of the time at the behest of King Leo, the Congolese could do nothing to defend themselves properly. Everything and everyone in the Congo Free State was now the king's personal property. And to disobey the 14,000 white soldiers sent to Belgium telling them what to do was to disobey the king himself, and that meant death. Now that the king had his colony, he meant business. All he cared about was his return on investment, and he knew that the Congo was rich in resources, especially ivory. So at the beginning, his focus was on getting the people of the Congo to produce as much ivory as possible. For the first several years, King Leopold's ROI depended on the ivory, but the problem was that the ivory market wasn't new and it was already overly saturated, making it very difficult to make any sort of profit. And on a number of occasions, Leopold and other investors nearly defaulted, making them even more desperate for that return on investment. Leopold wasn't one to give up, though. In the early 1890s, he noticed that there was an increased demand for rubber in Europe, as things like bicycles and automobiles began emerging and becoming more common. The Congo is full of natural rubber. So Leopold knew exactly what his next move would be. He needed to extract the rubber and corner the market at any cost. And that's exactly what he did. The name of the game in the Congo Free State was forced labor. That's what almost every source I read called it, forced labor. But is that not slavery? Like, Let's just call a spade a spade. Forced labor is slavery. Calling it forced labor really just makes it seem like they're trying to make it seem like it wasn't as bad as it was. But it was slavery, plain and simple. These people were not given options. They had to collect this rubber. The Congolese were forced into the rainforests to extract the natural rubber there. From 1895 to 1900, the rubber exports from the Congo increased from 580 to 3,740 tons. And none of it was extracted in any kind of humane or ethical way. The dependence on rubber led to what became known as the Red Rubber System Labor Policy. Basically, it meant that the administration, so Leopold and everyone doing his bidding, considered the forced labor to be taxation, the more slaves a company used to extract rubber, the less they owed in actual monetary taxes. One thing the administration was not specific about with regard to this policy was their labor standards and compensation. Essentially, there weren't any, and companies in the Congo could do as they pleased with the lives of the people whom they were forcing to extract the rubber. There was absolutely no regard for human life by these companies, the state, or by Leopold himself. All of the cruelty that we are about to talk about happened 
because of racism and money, nothing else. Payment to the laborers was an absolute fucking joke. And they would be compensated with things like a piece of cloth, one portion of salt, some beads, or if they were really lucky, a dull knife. Not really payment at all, is it? And there was no refusing to work for these rubber companies. None. There was no refusing slavery. If some people in your village quote-unquote agreed and you refused, you were publicly whipped. And if your whole village refused, it was burnt to the ground. And you and your people were taken as hostages until you agreed to work. Even though Leopold and the Belgian government denied that this was the policy, the administration in the Congo were given a book which was full of instructions on how to take hostages. Villages that refused to work had people taken hostage in order to get the chiefs to agree to make their people work. Sometimes the chiefs themselves were taken hostage and held in prisons. There really was very little discrimination about who got taken hostage and who didn't. Didn't really matter, as long as rubber got extracted. There isn't a ton of information on the conditions of these prisons, but it's safe to assume that they were fucking awful, because in 1899 alone, three to ten prisoners died per day. And that was just what was reported. It's got to be even higher. The rubber companies controlling operations in the Congo employed their own militias to keep slaves in line through whatever means they thought was appropriate. However, they weren't the only ones to enforce the slavery and extraction of the rubber. In 1885, they created the Force Publique, which was a militia made up of men from the Congo and other areas as far as Zanzibar and Liberia. They went around recruiting specific ethnic groups to work, and at their peak, they had 19,000 men in their ranks working together alongside the company's militias as well. As is probably glaringly obvious, the cruelty did not stop once people started collecting rubber. If anything, getting recruited was the easy part. The rubber companies set insane quotas for the slaves to meet, driven by their greed. Their greed and racism was so strong that these people working for them weren't even seen as people, just the means to an end. Not meeting quotas was very often punished by death. If someone who didn't meet a quota got to live, they were just lucky enough to have caught the person watching over them, which was either the force publique or the militia, on a particularly good day. Like, it was just luck if they didn't meet a quota and lived to tell the tale. The force publique, and also very sorry to my French-speaking listeners, I I can't with your pronunciation. It's I, I, I'm so horrible with French pronunciation. <laughs> anyway, the force publique were very often watching over these labor camps, and they were given proper guns and ammunition from the Europeans. But 
there was a standard that they had to meet. The administration was worried about the force stockpiling ammunition and that leading to a well-armed rebellion that would kill their profits and their people, but they cared more about the money. The administration's solution for this was to only give each member of the force a specific number of bullets, and for every bullet fired, they had to cut off the right hand of the person they killed. So they always had to shoot to kill. And when they killed, they removed the right hand. One severed hand equaled one bullet. If anyone given 10 bullets only presents eight hands, then they were punished. Now, the natural question I'm sure all of you have is, so what if they fired a bullet and didn't kill anyone? What if it hit like a tree or something? Well, when that happened, the solution was just as horrifying as you're thinking it is. They removed the hand of a living person. And since people were most often shot and killed for not meeting quotas, and quotas were very often set at impossible standards, and because hands became considered to be a replacement for missing quotas, essentially currency, people began to chop off their own hands or their neighbor's hands other people's hands, or sometimes they would steal hand supplies, I suppose, from neighboring villages, or they would raid other villages to cut off people's hands. Never both, just the right hand. And these mutilations became the symbol of this entire atrocity. One author who wrote about the happenings in the Congo said, quote, the baskets of severed hands, set down at the feet of European post commanders, became the symbol of the Congo Free State. The collection of hands became an end in itself. Force public soldiers brought them to the stations in place of rubber. They even went out to harvest them instead of rubber. They became a sort of currency. They came to be used to make up for shortfalls and rubber quotas, to replace the people who were demanded for the forced labor gangs. And the force public soldiers were paid their bonuses on the basis of how many hands they collected. Unquote. To escape massacres, and massacres based on whether or not a village was refusing to work, or massacres based on people just trying to collect hands. Some people were very smart and they played dead. That's what I would certainly do in that situation. But these people had to play dead while their hands were being cut off. Imagine. I don't think I would be able to do it. To just not have any reaction to your hand being chopped off? Holy shit. And after a person's hand was chopped off, even if they had shown that they were alive, at that point it didn't matter, they had the hand. And no one cared whether or not that person lived or died. 
was just kind of luck of the draw if they lived or died. And I honestly don't know what would be luckier living or dying in that situation. This would be a horrifying way to treat ants, let alone human fucking beings. And while it does sound incredibly barbaric to just be raiding other villages to steal people's hands, let's remember that those behaving in a barbaric manner were not the people cutting off the hands, but the people who built the system that led to it and then did absolutely nothing to stop it. For both the villagers and the force publique, the alternative for not cutting off these hands to account for quotas not being met was death. It was either take hands or die. What would you do? Like, it's an impossible situation. The man who started the practice of severing hands was named Leon Fives, and he was just one of the worst human beings ever. In addition to the hands, Leon ordered his militias to burn down villages, to burn people alive, and to burn crops to intentionally cause famine. All of that and more earned him the nickname the Devil of the Equator. Oh, and it wasn't just the Congolese being forced to work, might I add, oh no. The Belgians imported slaves not only from other parts of Africa, but China, the Middle East, and various Caribbean islands as well. For the sake of diversity, of course, an equal opportunity slaver here, how progressive. What was happening in the Congo was witnessed by a lot of outsiders who went there, particularly missionaries who went to spread Christianity, like Leopold had said he would. And while I don't agree with missionaries back then or today, I must give credit to the people who went to the Congo and documented the horrors going on there, because without that documentation of these horrors, we wouldn't know half of what we do now. One Catholic priest who went to one of Leon's camps spoke to and quoted a local man in his writing, saying, quote, All the blacks saw this man as the devil of the equator. From all the bodies killed in the field, you had to cut off the hands. He went to see the number of hands cut off by each soldier, who had to keep them in baskets. A village which refused to provide rubber would be completely swept clean. As a young man, I saw Fives's soldier Malili, then guarding the village of Boyeka, take a net, put ten arrested natives in it, attach big stones to the net, and make it tumble into the river. Rubber causes these torments. That's why we no longer want to hear its name spoken. Soldiers made young men kill or rape their own mothers and sisters. Unquote. A Danish missionary wrote, Quote, the soldier said, don't take this to heart so much. They kill us if we don't bring the rubber. The commissioner has promised us if we have plenty of hands, he will shorten our service, unquote. But it wasn't just the missionaries who were writing about all that was going on. One soldier was traumatized by what he was ordered to do after a village refused to collect rubber, and he wrote, quote, the officer in command ordered us to cut off the heads of the men and hang them on the village palisades, and to hang the women and children on the palisades in the form of a cross, unquote. There are two people who visited the Congo during this period 
that we absolutely have to talk about. One was Joseph Conrad, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because he wrote the novella Heart of Darkness, which I'm sure many of you probably had to read in school. I did. I had to read it in high school and at university. Heart of Darkness was originally published in a periodical in 1899 and became a book in 1902, and it was written while Conrad sailed up the Congo River. He saw firsthand the cruelty that was happening there, and it inspired the book. The Heart of Darkness was the Congo itself and the things that were happening there. And I have to say, the fact that I read this book twice in high school and at university, and no one mentioned King Leo, or the rubber, or the genocide. No one, not one person, this was never discussed. It was always, they always told us, like, yeah, it takes place in the Congo, he, he went up the Congo River, and it's no one fucking ever mentioned why he wrote the book, what he saw. It was never brought up, and I just don't understand how. It makes no sense. Why wouldn't we talk about it? Why wouldn't we learn about it? Especially when, of all of Conrad's fictional works, this was the only one that was directly tied to his personal experiences. At least documented ones. There's no reason we shouldn't have learned about the atrocities in the Congo. I read Heart of Darkness first when I was 16, and at that point we had already learned about the Holocaust, we read the book Night when we were 14, so the brutality of what happened to the people in the Congo would not have been too much for us. We were already versed in studying horrible genocide. We had studied slavery, it's just, it's just, they didn't talk to us about it. I would be willing to put my life savings, which admittedly is not a lot, but I would be willing to put my life savings on a bet that we didn't learn about it because the people killed in the Congo were black and the people killed in the Holocaust were mostly white. And if anyone has an argument to the contrary, I would genuinely love to hear it because I, I don't, I can't think of any good reason why we wouldn't learn about it. I feel like the only proper argument someone could give is that, you know, it's very heavy and, you know, there's a lot to, to learn and the brutality was so awful. Maybe it's sensitive for some students, but we had already learned about the Holocaust. We would have been fine. And especially at university, really no fucking, no fucking excuse. Apologies for the rant. I'm just really upset that this was never taught in school. And it's not just the US. They don't teach this in the UK, Spain, Croatia or Greece either, according to my friends who are from those countries, and I asked. Anyway, there was one more person who went to the Congo that we really must talk about. His name was George Washington Williams. He was a black man born in Pennsylvania in 1849, and he was a lawyer, a journalist, and a politician, really a, a jack of all trades. In 1888, he traveled to Europe, seeing London and Brussels as part of the World Conference on Foreign Missions. And in 1889, he was actually granted an interview with King Leopold himself. Reportedly, Williams was very impressed with the king and his quote-unquote plans to develop the Congo. The king knew how to charm people. 
It had worked with all of the heads of Europe and it worked on Williams as well, who then became extremely interested in visiting the Congo. And he got his wish because in 1890, President Benjamin Harrison approved Williams' trip himself. As you can imagine, Williams was absolutely appalled and horrified by what he saw in the Congo and went on to pen an open letter to His Serene Majesty Leopold II, King of the Belgians and Sovereign of the Independent State of Congo in July 1890. In this open letter, he tore King Leopold a new one, condemning him for what was happening in the Congo, saying that since all the violence was being done in his name, he was just as culpable as all of the perpetrators. He also highlighted Henry Morton Stanley's role in the whole thing and did his best to appeal to the international community to, quote, call and create an international commission to investigate the charges herein preferred in the name of humanity, unquote. And that, quote, Leopold II was guilty of many crimes against humanity, unquote. Yes, George Washington Williams coined the term crimes against humanity when writing about the atrocities in the Congo. So there is your historical fact for the day. Quiz your friends about it. Where did the phrase crimes against humanity come from? I guarantee they don't know because no one ever talks about this story. In the aftermath of the letter, the Belgians tried their hardest to discredit Williams, of course, naturally. But Williams fought back and he was ready to go back to the US to talk to President Harrison and get the ball rolling on an international commission, on that international commission to investigate all of this shit because he was a good man. But while Williams was leaving Africa, he got sick in Cairo and he was well enough to be able to get back to London, but he ended up dying from his illness whatever it was, in England in 1891. By and large, the people living in Belgium during this time really weren't privy to, like, any of this. A lot of Belgians genuinely had no idea what was going on. Like, some people definitely knew, how could they not? And I'm sure there were a lot of rumors going around, but for the most part, the average Belgian during this time really just didn't know what was happening in the Congo, and that fact sucks even more when you learn what Leopold did with all the money he made. Because let's not forget, Leopold was just in it for the money. The money that King Leopold made from the rubber extracted by his slaves in the Congo made him one of the richest people in the world. And he used that money to build beautiful things in Belgium. The rubber money paid for lots of constructions in Belgium, but the most notable two are the Antwerpen Central Railway Station and the Son Contenaire, a building that is like part of the national identity in Brussels. Walking around both Antwerp and Brussels today, it's hard to not see things that were built with the rubber money. And there are no mentions anywhere of the Congolese and what they contributed to those buildings, as if nothing ever happened. One place you can find the Congolese mentioned is at the Royal Museum for Central Africa, 
Leopold's personal Congo money paid for that museum too. And inside the museum, there is a 20-foot statue of Leopold looking down on everything. The museum is not one that appreciates the Congo and its people and its culture, but rather appreciates the Belgian colony. A museum of the Congo through the eyes of the man that bought and exploited it. And you know what's even worse? There's a list of people who died in the Congo at that museum. But the list is of the Belgian soldiers who died down there, not the Congolese. In fact, we don't have those names because they never cared enough to learn them at the time or write them down anywhere. Eventually, though, after more and more people visited the Congo and more and more people saw the crimes against humanity being committed in the king's name, the more scrutiny was put onto the king and Belgium as a whole. George Washington Williams' open letter was the first official protest of the free state and more followed in the following 18 years. The next big incident came in 1895 in what was called the Stokes Affair. Long story short, an Irish missionary named Charles Stokes went to the Congo where he was accused of selling weapons to rebels in exchange for ivory. Whether or not this is true, we we can't know for sure, but the Belgians in the Congo certainly thought it was true, and they hanged him for his crimes without a trial in January 1895. And when I tell you, the British public was pissed. They were so mad about him not being given due process, and it turned them against the Free State. And then in May 1895, a British report was published detailing the humanitarian abuses occurring in the Congo by the Belgians, and that mobilized the British contempt for the Free State and King Leopold even more. To try and get the heat off of him, Leopold created the Commission for the Protection of Natives, which was led by missionaries, but he really didn't put any effort at all into reforming anything. It was just a front to save face, like nothing came of that. Back in the UK, though, a French-born activist named E.D. Morel began a campaign against the Free State that amassed huge support. In 1906, he wrote a book called Red Rubber that detailed the horrors of the Congo, and it reached a really wide audience, turning much of Europe and the Americas against Belgium and its king. Morel's campaign was even endorsed by the likes of Joseph Conrad, of course, but then also Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Mark Twain. The British House of Commons even issued a formal condemnation in 1903. And just think about that for a second. Imagine being so cruel so evil and caring so little for the lives of indigenous people that the British thought that it was completely inhumane and barbaric. The British thought that he had gone too far. The fucking British who took over half the globe and slaughtered countless people. What Leopold was doing was too much even for them. And as a British person, damn Damn, like that says so much. And other European powers condemned Belgium as well, like France and Spain, who also fuck shit up a lot in the world. 
But man, I can't I can't even fully wrap my brain around it. So at this point, Leopold was basically like, shit, I really have to make it look like I care about these people. So instead of putting together any kind of labor reform, because that would put a dent in his profits, he decided to tackle disease, which was admittedly rampant in the Congo. And he strategically enlisted the help of the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine to get the UK government off his back. Leopold and his administration lied and said that the reason for the sharp population decline in the Congo had nothing to do with the labor practices, but rather they had a huge problem with smallpox and sleep sickness, which is an illness caused by flies biting you and then parasites getting in. It's nasty. And sure, like those did kill a lot of people. But the best estimates we have on the population today are that the Congo Free State started with 20 million people and ended with 10 million people. Disease didn't do all of that, mate, not with the records we have. Anyway, the group with the loudest voice for ending Leopold's role in the Free State was the Congo Reform Association. And don't let them fool you. They had nothing against colonialism. That was fine for them. They just didn't like Leopold. True, people were moved by the atrocities, but the solution to them wasn't giving the Congo independence, that would be stupid when there's so much money to be made there. No, they wanted Belgium to officially annex the Congo so that it would be under the control of the Belgian government and not the king privately. And the Congo Reform Association, they got their wish in 1908 after facing immense pressure, the Belgian government officially annexed the Congo, creating the Belgian Congo. And right before he gave up power, Leopold had all the evidence his people could find about his exploits in the Congo destroyed. And neither he nor anyone associated with the atrocities were ever punished. In fact, Belgian soldiers in the Congo were even given medals for their service. In the end, though, Leopold wasn't really affected by this change of power as he died just 13 months after the annexation at the age of 74, which was very old back then. And the bastard had the goal to die peacefully. The only positive thing here is that during his funeral procession, people stood around booing. But like, that's, that's it. That's really the only punishment he ever faced was booing at his funeral procession. Leopold was actually considered to be the standard for the absolute worst cruelty in Europe, only then to be replaced 40 years later by Hitler. The only person that has ever been able to dethrone King Leopold's cruelty was Hitler. And admittedly, I don't think Hitler was necessarily worse. I think they were as bad as each other. As for the Congolese, their lives did improve after Leopold was stripped of power, but only in the sense that the slavery wasn't as bad. Like, there was still slavery, and it was still bad because it's slavery, but not everyone was a slave, and those that were, 
didn't have to worry as much about their hands being chopped off because, you know, progress. That was sarcasm if you couldn't get it from my voice. Working conditions did improve somewhat in the following decades, but Belgium only ever looked out for its white people, and the Congolese obviously wanted them out. I mean, of course, they never wanted them there in the first place. Why would they? But the Congolese couldn't forget the atrocities committed against them because many were still disfigured after having their hands chopped off and were traumatized by the things that they had seen or the things that they had been forced to do. We don't have time for the whole story of the Congo's independence. If you would like me to do it, um, I could do it on the next layover, but it's honestly not that exciting. Basically, the colony thing just kind of fizzled out for Belgium, and they had no long-term strategy for how to keep the colony going. And then there was a week of riots in the capital, Leopoldville, which is now Kinshasa, but yes, it was once Leopoldville. And then Belgium was like, you know, let's just leave. They don't really make us that much money anymore anyway, so let's let's just get the fuck out. And then they gave the Congo independence in 1960. That's it. Obviously, that is a very abridged version, but that's really all we have time for today. And Belgium really left the Congo in, in quite a state. Belgium offered virtually no support to the Congolese in matters of setting up a government. They just said peace out and dipped. And considering Belgium really hadn't invested much into high quality education in the Congo as well, they were pretty much doomed from the start. Today, the Congo is known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, or DRC, and they have a lot of problems. But every systemic problem that they have now, every conflict, every civil war, can be traced back to how they were treated by the Belgians, by King Leopold, or by Belgium as a country. And speaking of the Belgians, boy, did they do a bang-up job of suppressing the history and making themselves look like a harmless little country that just spends all its time drinking beer and eating fries and chocolate. Really got to give them credit for how well they were able to make people forget about these atrocities and just pretend like they never happened, even though it happened so recently. It ended in 1908. Holy shit. That wasn't very long ago. At least the atrocities ended in 1908, but then they were only given independence in 1960. Like, this is all recent stuff. And the fact that they were able to suppress the history, it's, it's, honest, it's horrible, obviously, but it's kind of impressive. Because all of this had happened so far away, the Belgian people really weren't affected by the atrocities in the Congo in any way. I mean, they, they didn't have any visual reminders of what happened. And so it quickly faded from memory. And a few years after Leopold's passing, statues of him began to be erected all over the country, and people started to remember him as a benevolent ruler with just, like, no thought for what he did in the Congo. Of course, this is more the fault of the Belgian government than everyday Belgians for not properly reckoning with their history. And honestly, Belgium could learn a lot from Germany, 
and how they've dealt with the horrors their country has committed in the past. Because Germany actually does a really good job in their education system with it. And Belgium could learn from Germany, but so could the UK and Spain and the US and France and probably a lot of other countries too. It probably won't come as a surprise that reparations have never been paid to those who suffered as a result of what happened in the Congo, and the cynic in me says that they never will. The most the Congo has ever gotten from Belgium was a formal apology made by the current King Philippe to the president of the DRC, Felix Shisketi, last year for the 60th anniversary of their independence. However, I personally think that the apology came as a form of damage control because it was issued in June 2020 when the Black Lives Matter protests were in full swing around the world in the wake of George Floyd's death. During these protests, Belgian citizens had rightfully been desecrating statues of Leopold II all over the country, and they continued to have paint thrown on them regularly, as they should. So yeah, the apology wasn't because it was the 60th anniversary. It was definitely because of the current events in the world. It was the first time a Belgian monarch officially apologized to the Congo. But that's not enough, mate. After what your country did, it's not enough. Obviously, no Belgians currently in the government and nor King Philippe had anything directly to do with it. The atrocities, I mean, but fuck. Just an apology? That's it? Belgium was responsible for at least 10 million deaths. But we can't know for sure because they didn't care enough about the people to keep any kind of proper records. They only ever cared about the money that the Congo could make for them and nothing else. And all you've got is... Sorry? It's a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. But I'm going to end the story on a slightly happier note by telling you that back in the 90s, in Kinshasa, which is the capital and formerly Leopoldville, young people gathered together to wrap some ropes around the statues of the former king and tore that shit down to remove his face from their city and to make sure he got no glory anywhere in their country for what he did. His statues now either sit in museums as part of history or in junkyards where they truly belong. If you would like to see photos, they're not going to be easy photos to look at, uh, but they will be on the social media, which you can follow uh, on Instagram at truecrimeintl, or there is a Facebook group, which you can join by just searching True Crime International. If you are enjoying this podcast and you would like more of it, you can subscribe to the Patreon. There are three levels, which are three, five, and seven dollars. I always want to keep uh, the Patreon and this podcast as affordable as possible if you in are going to join Patreon. Yeah. Honestly, doing promotions right now just feels wrong. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving a five star review. It really helps to boost the show and it is much, much, much appreciated. And I just want to thank you for sitting through this episode. This is the hardest one I've ever written, and it was also the hardest one I've ever recorded. I feel 
a lot of things right now. But I do have a question, though, for any Belgians or Congolese people listening to this. I'm genuinely curious to know how this history is taught in your schools, in your countries. Um, really, really, really would love to know. Uh, maybe we could even do like a, a little interview to, to learn more because I'm very interested to compare and contrast how Belgians learn about this history versus what Congolese learn about this history. So if you're from either of those countries, um, I would really love to hear from you. You can contact me on social media. And that's it. I hope you learned something new. If you haven't heard this story before, welcome. Um, I'm really upset I didn't know about it, really upset I had never learned about it in school. It's insane because it's such a huge thing. But yeah, um, thank you for joining me today. I hope you learned something new and I hope you enjoyed your stay here at True Crime International. Bye.